Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 33. With me this month is writer, independent video producer, and film critic, Bob Chipman, also known as Movie Bob. Hello. Nice to have you on with me. Just getting right into it, how did you get into video making or video producing? Well, I've always been, well, for pretty much since I was like a mid-teenager, been very interested in films and filmmaking. I went to went to college for it, for a, in my degrees in interactive multimedia and film. I pretty much have always been shooting, you know, videos and shooting films and whatnot back in the analog days. I'm, I'm 35, so I'm old enough that, uh, you know, I remember the world before the internet, which did exist. And, uh, you know, in, in that time, I would make, you know, movies with my friends at home. We would uh, try to get on, like, the independent film circuit, much more difficult back then. Right around the time when I was getting into, just getting out of college, really, was when internet video really started to hit, was when, you know, this this was like, you know, around 2004, 2005, when I was done with higher education, was right around the time that, at least for me, that YouTube and before that iFilm and Adam Films, which sounds prehistoric now, um, just started to hit. And uh, I saw a lot of, you know, in those days, it was, a, you know, YouTube and, and such. There was no such thing almost as people actually making shows. You know, it was all people running into walls and falling down. And so the stuff that's really popular today is the stuff that was only then. And I, I had uh, recently completed being on a, a public access cable, which was like the pre-YouTube YouTube I was the co-host of a film criticism show locally in uh, Danvers, Massachusetts, a small town near where I'm from. I was on that for a year and a half and, you know, kind of got uh, my first taste for, you know, performing on camera. Previously, I had, you know, done film criticism and writing and such things, tried to start a couple blogs, didn't really work out. I happened to be online one day and uh, saw, like a lot of people who started out in the video gaming space, saw uh, James Rolfe's Angry Video Game Nerd at the time, still called the Angry Nintendo Nerd. And it wasn't so much a sense of, hey, I can do that, as it was a sense, because he was really good right off the bat. The the guys, he's he's just a machine. He has been, you know, pumping it out for years, and he was just a natural for this right off the bat. And I saw that, and it got me really interested in exploring this this blossoming world, you know, that was, which sounds so pretentious, of people hosting review shows and things like that on YouTube. And I watched so much of this stuff, I eventually sort of decided, you know, I'm, I'm working in retail, nothing's really happening for me. Maybe I, I should try making, in, in school, I apologize for rambling, by the way, I never prepare anything. I had uh, had my first exposure to using Adobe products, uh, Adobe Premiere, Adobe Photoshop, whatnot. And because I'd had them for school, I still had the software at home. Uh, because otherwise, how would I afford that stuff working in a Best Buy in the mid-2000s? So I realized, you know, I have video making software. You know, I learned how to do slideshows and videos and whatnot, and I have a digital camera. So, you know, why not... Uh, you know, first thought, maybe this can be the uh, platform to launch a couple independent films from, but while I'm here, why not make like a slideshow voiceover recording type thing about video games? Because I have a lot of thoughts about that. 
So I made one, and that was uh, that was the first game Overthinker video. Just kind of put it together over the course of a night, uh, popped it up online, and uh, I liked it, and I did a couple more. And no, no one really watched them. It didn't really have much of an audience. And then I, I thought to send uh, a cop, because I, I had you know become aware of Screw Attack by watching uh, James's show. And uh, said, you know, hey, this is a cool site. I should, you know, send email them a link to the first video of mine. Maybe they will think it's amusing. A couple of weeks go by, and they wind up putting it on the front page of their website, the, the early, early version of Screw Attack. Video jumps up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits overnight. Suddenly people know who I am. And uh, I have been going on uh, since then. I hope that made sense. Oh, no, it did you pseudo answered like my next three questions as it were. Oh geez. <laughs> but it's interesting with like a handle like movie Bob that you, your YouTube channel ostensibly starts off with something called the game overthinker. Yeah. Why specifically the moniker, the game overthinker? Like I get the pun in there. Uh, well regarding movie Bob, you know, my first piece of advice to anyone starting out on the internet now is, you know, as as if anyone you know who is aware of the internet doesn't start out on it. I mean, I think you're you're issued it at birth now. But choose what you're going to call yourself first, really carefully, because by the time you've got everything set up and all your passwords saved and everything put together, that's pretty much what you're going to be called forever. And uh, so I, I called myself Movie Bob because I was I was Bob and I liked movies. And that was the nickname, and so I stuck it on the blog and put it on other things. And by the time it came time to maybe have something that sounded like a more clever or professional moniker, that was my name. Um, you know, Game Overthinker, the first thought when putting the first one together, it, the, the pun really came first. You know, as a side effect of, you know, being in, in school and learning about, you know, filmmaking, learning about film industry, entertainment industry, art business, I've, I've kind of been like hyper aware of branding for a long time so when i when i was thinking about a, doing a video game show i thought up oh game overthinker oh hey that's cute you know i'll think you know i'll, I'll say you know analytical smarty things about video games and i'll be the game overthinker that's fun and i thought well someone must have already claimed this you know looked it up no one had claimed this so i thought well i'd better because that's a, a good handle that's good branding so i took it we're beginning this new series with uh, focusing on video critics. We did a publications last year, and going back through like the early like video game like video based criticism is like it's a really weird time warp mm. because it like your first video was in was almost eight years ago, February of two thousand eight, I believe, is what YouTube says. Don't know how accurate that is, mm. and it's just it's really really bizarrely different. Yes. It's like, what What do you remember of the landscape back then? Uh, well, the first thing was that everyone was doing... Uh, any. There was no roadmap on how to do any of this stuff because the major TV networks, major film studios, major producers, no one was paying attention to online video. You know, one of the, the things about the, you know, the, the business that people don't tend to realize is that the people at the very top of any industry, even if it is, you know, a tech industry, are themselves usually very slow to change anything because 
they know better, quite frankly. They, they, you know, the, the, the people who run businesses that run on early adopters are not themselves early adopters because they're smart. So there's no, there, there was no professional video space to think of. There were a couple, like, fairly being charitable, call them like, you know, sleazy, you know, Hollywood TV producer types who kind of saw the future of this and tried to get it on the ground floor, and a lot of the launches there didn't last. So when people were putting together YouTube shows, when you go back and look at them, a lot of it is people, more or less, it, it looks like Wayne's World. It looks like a thousand different Waynes and Garths. You know, people, you know, the, the joke of Wayne's World being... God, is Wayne's World even relevant anymore as, like, a joke? I mean, I know it's funny, but, like, the joke of that show was, hey, what if two guys had a TV show that's just a camera set up in their living room, and now that's a thousand different billion-dollar enterprises? But, like, on Wayne's World, it's supposed to be funny, you know, that, hey, what if two two assholes put a camera in their living room and just pretended they had a talk show, and now, like, I make a living doing that, like an actual living? Yeah, I did... Like I've only I've only ever seen the first movie, so now that you like put it like that, that that was the base joke. It's like wow, that's not really funny because yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's it's just uh, and I mean because and again coming from I don't, I don't want to sound like you know like pretentious like I had like the secret sauce or something, but coming from having been in public access television kind of was a good preparation for this because that's the same sort of thing where you see people who have watched TV shows and would like to have their own sort of put on a low-budget Little Rascals putting on a show in the garage kind of facsimile of a show, and that's what pretty much all of early YouTube was. You know, you could distinguish yourself back then by having the necessary technology to record from your television set directly into your computer for, like, your video game reviews, rather than just pointing the camera at a TV and getting that glare thing going. And it was the Wild West. You know, you had guys who, again, going back to James Rolfe, the the angry nerd, was a natural-born talent for this stuff. Like, Like, he showed up and knew exactly the show he wanted to do, and just got it out there, and it was exactly what the world was looking for at that moment, I was pretty much doing PowerPoint presentations. You know, it was a succession of, of images and talking over it, and, you know, the, the main distinction of in terms of real weirdness being that because YouTube back then put a cap on the length of your video is I had, like, sped my voice up to the point that I sounded kind of like one of the chipmunks to get it in under the 15. You're not the only one that did that. Last month we did extra credits, and that became a moniker of theirs. <laughs> yeah. Actually, people who did amazing work right off the bat, though, again, you, you can see it coming from a lot of the professional space. Dan is an animator. You know, so he's already already knew that kind of thing. He's like, hey, we have recognizable characters. We've got things going by. We've got images. You know, they, they knew how to do it. Actually, speaking of that... Can you describe, like, the process you go through making the, the videos back in the day and how it may have changed over the years? Uh, well, it got faster. That was the, the main thing. Ba- back in the day, it was I would record myself. This all sounds so painfully low-tech. I would record myself on camera reading from a script because, you know, a microphone plugged directly into my computer. Who am I, Quincy Jones? You can hear the pages turning in the early videos. Yeah, you can. And I would I would do that. And because at the time I was 
you know, I won't even front. You know, I got out of college. I went. Uh, there were no job prospects for me. I went right back into the retail space that I'd been in since high school, and I was still living with my parents. So I was doing these, you know, from my from my uh, my room, you know, from like uh, the kitchen, from the living room at night when everyone else was asleep, and I would sit in front of the of the uh, the camera, and I would read from the script. You know, you can hear the pages turning, and then I would uh, take that video. I would download it into Adobe Premiere you know, cut out just the sound, and then I would go online through Google Image Search, which was a new thing then, and it, like, changed everyone's life, because it was like, oh, oh my God, you can just name a picture and it shows up? What sorcery is this? So I would do that, <laughs> and I would get these things all assembled together, and uh, then I'd, I'd put the show out, and, and that, that would be that would be it. It was just, I'd work on it until it looked like a show, and then I would upload it and then see what would happen. So there's, like, no worry about how specifically you edit it like you would nowadays, like, with copyright content you have to, and fair use considerations? Oh, God, no. There was none of that. <laughs> there was no – I mean, you go, go back and you can't find them anymore because so much of it has been pulled down. But, like, you know, early days of YouTube, people would be putting together, you know, mashups of movies and, you know, inserting themselves into footage because the people who owned these things, you know, if they were aware of – you know, like if Warner Brothers was aware of the internet at all in terms of video, you know they were thinking of it as, well, who's going to watch this? We don't have to worry about this. This isn't the new piracy. It's like the size of a postage stamp. You know, no, no this this was never going to be a thing. Like the the smartphone hadn't happened yet. You know, like I had a BlackBerry and it was high tech. He was like, holy shit, my internet's on the road. I still had a flip phone back then. Yeah, it, it was it was nuts, man. The the low tech this if this feels like talking about this stuff feels like the really bullshit version of when old NASA guys go you know we had like an Apple IIe and we went to the moon but it's true more specifically into the process like the images you did chose it almost seemed like they were well you actually know film history so you might know this way back in the day when sound first came to film critics and like people who actually liked film as an art form were really worried that it was going to become like all these cartoons and the sound's just going to be used to highlight every little movement like when uh, when you have like the disney characters walking you go do 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 and it, like and every note is highlighting his step it says oh my god is this what sounds come to making every and i kind of feel like that's what like with your early videos the images were a bit on the nose, like with every word, a new like flashcard would come on to highlight some visual pun to do with that word. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was that was more or less intentional, you know, because uh, you know part of that came from the fact that this was like a hobby for me. This was something I was not looking to make money with. This I was not looking to. I couldn't conceive of doing this as a job. You know, it hadn't even occurred to me that people doing videos like, you know, early Screw Attack, uh, Angry Nerd, the other people who were online then were, in fact, you know, making some kind of money doing this stuff because who would even pay you? Where would it come from? Advertising? What's that? So I would, like, work on these, those original videos. Those would get worked on over the course of, you know, hours, days, a week. And so I would have time to sit down and, and you know, like, really listen to the script over and over again. You know, it just occurred to me that uh, since you couldn't, like, downloading internet video was, like, an hours-long process for, like, you know, a 10-minute clip then, especially on my shitty equipment at the time. So it became much easier to just let the script play and just put every image, you know, to a word. 
you know, to have that go, maybe have like a nice image sitting there for like a couple seconds while you like ran out of the stretch, but you know, just toss up the images and if they could be funny, more's the better. So have like a visual pun. You know, if you say sandwich, put up a sandwich. If you say, uh, you know, something is crap, you know, put up a picture of a movie or TV show or person you think is crap, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's all, or, all very basic yeah. stuff, really. Or in episode two, the Tom Brady, Eli Manning for the night and knave. Yeah, that was that was that was something that was uh, <laughs> that 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 was that was a gag. But how did that evolve over time as the like the episodes went on? Well, I needed to go faster. That was uh, that was the main thing. I needed to do, you know once once there was an audience and once there was you know the the chance of being able to get some attention to this and uh, you know maybe do this pseudo professionally, it just became. You need to get these things done over the course of a couple days, a night if necessary. And by that point, you know, uh, game trailers, I think, had added a, a download button to a lot of their stuff. And it was like, oh, wow, this is holy shit. I can get video clips now. So now I could just talk on at a good clip. And then suddenly it's like, well, there's one minute of the video, a.k.a. four hours of work down. You know, because now here's some video, and it made it look better, made it look more professional, and uh, off to the races. I bring up these points because you have, like, a written script, so why not a blog post? What what specifically about the video format did you want to, like, I guess, harness to for these essays? I wanted them to get seen. My read of pretty much every business that I've tried to write in, and I've had I've had success as a writer. I have. But, you know, the the problem with it is that print is not dead, but it is old. And it is difficult to get, especially, you know, I'm, I'm Generation X, it was difficult to get us to sit down and read something when we could watch it. And now that people are able to, you know, pull out their phone and watch something, it is even harder. It's more arresting to see something visual. I come from a film and filmmaking background, so making it that way is more interesting to me. I tend to write as I speak better than I, I write. It, it takes me a lot longer to sit down and write a piece that reads well than it does to sit down and write out a script that's going to sound better coming out of my mouth as a spoken word piece. I've also noticed that in, like, not specifically the Game Overthinker pieces, but like your other video series where you've actually managed to use video to like to make a, a separate point while you're speaking. That it's sort of like some of the you know like some of those websites like Time and Polygon have like separate columns for related issues, but separate from the essay itself. Yes, and it feels like sometimes you can use the videos for that effect. So, sometimes it really is easier to show. It's it's difficult to describe how you decide one versus the other. I'm putting together right now a uh, you know a collection of hope what are hoped to be ebooks you know made from republications of old material. And one of the things that I was first thinking getting into this was was oh I've got all these scripts for episodes. It won't be difficult at all to adapt those to be in red form, and then I can use those as well. As it turns out, it actually is you know because something that is a really good spoken word piece does not translate to readable text very well at all. That's true of many things. I love, for example, the comedian George Carlin, you know, classic, one of the, the great inspirations of my sense of humor. I picked up a couple of, of the books that they've put out of uh, his jokes, basically 
in book form, and if you only knew from that, you would not know that this person was like a legendary comedian. You know, not that the material's not funny, but that it really does have to be read out in his own voice, in his cadence, matched to the way that you would say it. Yeah, he's such a rapid-fire speaker, I can't imagine a book catches that properly. Yeah, it's, you know, a, a raconteur is a skill that people generally don't recognize today as being, like, a really compelling skill, especially because we're, like, our, anyone who's on, like, our, our TV news personalities now, anyone who is not, you know, doing opinion editorial journalism or comedy is pretty much just reading the prompter now. And, you know, they don't have that personality because they're, they're designed not to. They're designed to be, you know, the, the semblance of a neutral, quote-unquote, source. And it doesn't have that kind of pop that you get, you know, you go back and watch the old news broadcasts of, you know, Walter Cronkite and early Dan Rather and uh, all of these, you know, the classic newsmen, at least in the United States, I think, you know, in England, for example, there's still a lot more performative journalism. You know, those guys, you know, delivered the news like they were sitting down for cigars and brandy and, you know, we're going to regale you of their tales in the mysterious East. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was a whole other world. And I, I try to keep in, in that frame of mind when I'm doing spoken word and doing, uh, you know, video reviews to make the fact that I'm speaking entertaining. Because if I'm just reading to you from the book, it's not interesting. You know, there has to be some performance. There has to be some pep. There has to be, if you ever get a look at one of my uh, pieces of script, they a complete mess because I've got all of these, you know, notations about what, uh, what tone my voice should be in or a caps lock to remind me what's an important word to emphasize. And, you know, like... Uh, People are probably listening to this right now and realizing that I have, you know, a, a minor stutter and a bit of a uh, tendency to go off on the, the New England eh, you know, when I'm searching for the next word. And that can't be present in, uh, in the work. Yeah, I usually edit those out. Mm. But speaking of performance, it's like you're performing right now because, as I understand, you have like a sort of radio voice when you do video, when you do audio. Uh, just a bit, Rather yeah. than your than your normal speaking accent. My, my normal speaking accent, yeah, it's gotten progressively less and less over time just by things because I, I do this so much. At the time, you know, when I was doing the, uh, and, you know, it was five or six years ago when I was first dropping in the jokes of slipping back into my normal Boston accent. And that would has, has kind of bled out as I've gotten further and further away from a lot of the spaces and situations and acquaintances who knew me by that voice, it's become a lot easier to use my, to use the, the learned accent that I, I picked up in college, you know, so that I didn't sound like as much of a tanny, which, which is where that comes from, if anyone is wondering. You know, Boston is a college town. I, I was in state school in Salem, but same rules apply. You will have an uninteresting social life, I think would be the, the G-rated version of that, if you sound like you are, in fact, a townie, as opposed to someone from, you know, somewhere more interesting. So, you know, you lose your townie voice pretty quickly if you're trying to. Have you watched those early episodes recently? Some, because I've been putting together the, the book stuff, because a couple of the early Game Over Thinker scripts did turn out to work pretty well as written once I did some editing to them. Yeah, I, I remember doing them, and I remember them fondly. 
But uh, yeah, it, it really is a much different animal than what's getting done now. Yeah, I just, in preparation for this, I decided, let's see how my memory of these videos actually holds up. And the first one is very combative. And, like, mm. not just, like, in the content, but, like, the level of vitriol that I don't remember, nor do I, like, expect from your, like, more contemporary material. Yeah. Honestly, kind of hard to watch eight years on. Yeah, yeah. With all these changes. But one thing I notice is, like, that there... There's always been like this this same point where you always have like this looking down upon what you consider the gray brown hardcore or nebulously described as that. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a thing early on. It still informs a lot of where I'm coming from, just because that's that's a lot of my perspective. But in terms of uh, looking to set myself apart when I uh, when I was putting the, these things together, was you know just come from where you're coming from and. I was dipping back into gaming. I've always been a fan of video games, a lover of video games. When I got into college, I pretty much stopped having the time. When I was in college and at work, I had this pretty much lost the time to, you know, play video games and just hang out and do that as much as I liked to back in the day. And so right around the time that, like, you know, of the, the PlayStation 2 launching and the, the Xbox happening and the Nintendo GameCube being a thing was when I was barely connected to the medium on the ground. Like, I, I had all of my club, my classic games. You know, my brother had a GameCube, and we would play stuff, and he had a PlayStation, and I would, you know, watch him play, and we would hang out, and it would be great. But I did not have the time or inclination to get into a lot of stuff. So when I got out and I was now I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into video games, you know, the you know, after a couple of years, the landscape seemed to have undergone a decidedly bizarre shift. And, you know, looking online, I, I did discover, you know, I was not alone in seeing a, I mean, Sega had gone away and become a third-party company you know, like, this was pre-Wii, so Nintendo was kind of considered, like, dead man walking. You know, this was, you know, they're going to follow suit right on that same way. A lot of the classic characters and uh, such uh, had had faded into the background, and the online multiplayer shooter thing had happened, and the mainstreaming of video games had gone down. But it hadn't happened in quite the way that I think a lot of people expected, which, you know, back in the, the golden age of gaming, quote-unquote, where people said, oh, you know, video games are going to be super, super mainstream, you know, we would have said, oh, so it's going to be like uh, like Walt Disney, where, you know, the uh, you know Mickey Mouse and everybody are these ubiquitous pop culture figures that everyone knows and references, you know, in, and instead, I, I land in, in this future now present, and... Gaming has become this thing where an audience that had not existed previously, which which is the multiplayer online shooter audience, I mean, it existed through, like, Counter-Strike, but that was, like, a PC thing, and that was off in its own different planet. And I jumped back into video games, and now, you know, Halo is is the big thing, and people who are super, super into Halo... You know, you ask them, okay, what's what's the premise of Halo? Who are the characters? What is the the story about? And a ton of people just couldn't tell you because it was only ever used to play Capture the Flag online. And the Call of Duty thing was starting to happen. 
and you know what became the subject for the first Game Over Thinker video was you know the, the the big announcement that Bionic Commando was coming back, and holy shit, you know this was before every other retro franchise was getting its reboot, and it was like Bionic Commando's back, holy shit! I remember Bionic Commando, that was great, and then it comes out and it looked like hardcore bullshit. You know, it looked like every other fucking game coming out at that time. You know, and, you know, I just, okay, this is, I've been wanting to do one of these game videos. I can easily get ten minutes out of this. So I did. What's interesting is that it's like ten minutes of that of that level of vitriol against Bionic Commando, and I honestly, until I saw that video, I did not remember that existed. Yeah, that went down in flames. <laughs> it, it didn't even stand a chance. But I bring all this up, especially, like, in retrospect of trying to describe what it was like in 2008, the entire scene, is because you're coming at this as someone who's positioning themselves as almost an outsider, and you said you felt like an outsider because you came back to the scene. But it almost seems like this scene, that these opinions seem to be rather the standard. Mm-hmm. And could it be that it's like, and you position yourself against like the those of the forums or the or people of like the public opinions on message boards and the like, and you wonder if that's because there wasn't yet a stable community of critics where the conversation seems to be happening now. I think that one of the flaws of the internet in general is right up until Twitter was a thing it was almost impossible to get a sense of what the actual popular opinion on the internet was. Because no matter where you would go, there was no such idea as the everyone talking at once in a great big room forum. Everything was curated, it was all you know, slivered and diced and sectioned as people wanted it to be. That was part of the early appeal of this stuff. And at the most, had to read dozens of blogs and tons of web forums. There was no such thing as like intense debate or WordPress or uh, any of the other various, you know, mass commenting systems. So people would have to have a different name and identity on every goddamn forum and a different handle. And you would never get a sense of what the majority was saying. So I really have no idea if the stuff that I was talking about that I was upset about or happy about in the earliest days of Game Over Thinker or of the early film criticism stuff on YouTube was actually reflecting a lot of popular opinion because I only had the forums to go on. And what I could tell at the very least in the the first Game Over Thinker, at least I thought I could tell, was that there had been a seismic shift in the audience of gaming and guys coming from my perspective, an older perspective perhaps, of, you know, what this medium is and what uh, what it can be, were kind of getting squeezed out. I guess what I want to say is, because those are like the really, really early days, as you went on, you started to get a, a feel and a handle, not just for the speed of putting it out, but like the format. But there is like, I guess you could say like, you could see the entire 100 episodes of the Game Overthinker as a sort of sediment state of, like, the changes that was going on in video reviewing and criticism yeah, over the years. Yeah, I agree with that. Because you begin with the angry shtick, which was a, a real shock to see come back into, 
it's not in vogue anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of a shock to see it again. But then you later on, you get into skits and ongoing story arcs and putting yourself in front of the camera. You weren't there early on, and you said you recorded with video, but what changed the fact of putting yourself like in the video itself? Well, There's like three questions in there. Well, so. when, it, when it comes to the angry shtick, a lot of it evolves. Out, and again, this this is dating myself a bit, but when you look at who was doing the angry shtick, you know, it was, you know, in the early on, and it's not just a shtick, because a lot of those people really were angry, but when when you, uh, I certainly was, but uh, when you look at who was doing it, it was a lot of mostly men, some women, but mostly, you know, it was the angry young guy stereotype, and a lot of them were angry young guys in their mid to late uh, 20s, and when you look at what people of that age, of, of my general age group there, you know, our formative monologuing frames of reference were pretty much Dennis Miller, the pre-asshole version of Dennis Miller, and like uh, Saturday Night Live monologues and comedians like Chris Rock, pre-Daily Show John Stewart, and a lot of that style. There was this moment in stand-up comedy in the, the and sketch comedy and television presentation in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the thing to be was a pissed off guy with a lot of opinions, you know, shooting it as fast as he could at the camera with really sharp, smart references. Again, it's weird to think back about because I really do think that like the actual father of the entire, you know, person monologuing on YouTube genre in terms of where it all comes from really was Dennis Miller on the Dennis Miller show on HBO in in the 90s and Dennis Miller has fallen so spectacularly as a, a public figure you know he went from being like the thinking man's comedian to being a right-wing hack on talk radio and it's like this lost era that this was like a really important guy and, I mean, I know I will not put it all. That's exactly who I was imitating when uh, when I was doing the early stuff was, okay, I need big words, I need smart references, I need shit that you have to look up to get the joke, and I need to say it fast and angry, and I need to swear and cuss and act like, you know, basically an entitled douchebag. And so that that's what I did because that was the smartest fucking comedy stuff going on at the time. In terms of changing into other stuff, I had not yet, I, I don't necessarily know the exact timeline for when Doug Walker and uh, that guy with the glasses, Nostalgia Critic, Channel Awesome, when that whole scene first started to boot into existence. I think I, w I myself got on camera before a lot of that started, but not in any way that anyone was, was really seeing yet. The first time I appeared as myself, I believe, in the, uh, the Game Over Thinker was for the video when Screw Attack had a competition to see who would become an official part of the site among various video makers. And I thought, well, I've got to step up my game. And my thought was, you know, I'm just doing slideshows so far. I need to, like, put me into the video. Maybe throw up some special effects, do some gamey references. And, uh, and I did. And I got a friend of mine. And we went down to uh, basically a condemned industrial park in Salem that was like partially overgrown, looked, you know, nice and grungy and 
pseudo apocalyptic and I put on my overcoat and sunglasses and yelled at the camera. That became, I think that was like the, the 20th or 30th episode of Game Overthinker. And that became, uh, that's the violence is golden one. And uh, that became a start to that. And after that, I realized, you know, it's kind of a pain in the ass to like set up the camera and talk to it and edit myself doing actual lines. But once I got that done and got into a rhythm about it, it was a lot easier and faster to just use that because now I have a visual frame of reference. It's me. I don't need a visual pun every five minutes. I can go from having a collection of images per episode that went from being like, you know, three or four hundred down to like 70. So that was, uh, you know, that's it alternately looked more professional and also was quicker to do. So I, I got into that. And of course, you know, it would be wrong to not acknowledge that, yes, James Rolfe ha had been on in his videos, you know, on screen doing his character you know, doing skits with his friends and visual gags for years before I or anyone else did it. So you seem to have settled down into that personality-driven essays of the like of Jim Sterling and such. Uh, to an extent, yeah. Again, it picks up the pace. Uh, also, in terms of, uh, I, I hate to break the magic and, and admit that, you know, this is a business, but it has been well proven out that you know, in the online video scene, people want to see the face of the person making the content on screen to some extent. You know, it makes it feel personal. It makes people feel like they're connected to it. It like it has a host to it there and it allows you to market and sell your image. So that is, uh, you know, the the game over here has always been a strange mix of following what is currently the thing to do in videos while also being as much of me as it possibly can be. But Game Over Thinker, is, if I recall, I haven't seen everything you've done, is the only a video show where you do appear. The others, you do stick to either pre-rendered images or even in the case of when you did the big picture show. Or what, what's its current incarnation? You don't call it that anymore. Uh, the current uh, big, well, the big picture trademark is owned by The Escapist, who I'm no longer uh, affiliated with. Yeah. I did a similar show called In Bob We Trust. That's it. That, that's Where you don't show up and you keep it to, like, uh, pre-made images. Yeah, that is... Because those videos are kind of, like, locked in at a five to six minutes top length, it is a lot easier to not have to do the setup for a live-action shoot because something can go wrong. Whereas the Game Overthinker, it becomes necessary to do a longer one like that because there are going to be stretches where it's going to be a little longer and I, I'm not going to necessarily have a video or an image to go with that, and i got to have something, so it might as well be me. But uh, the, the shows that started out being done for The Escapist had to be done... You know, for True HD, which I didn't have a True HD camera or particularly good, you know, shooting away from my face uh, sound equipment, and they had to be done fast enough that I could get one out a week without exception on a hard deadline. So I found the format that would work best for those, which was for Escape to the Movies, the movie review show, to use as much footage from the trailers as possible. And for the big picture, to have those uh, in lieu of 
having my face show up, I asked the art department to come up with a series of faces making emotional expressions that looked like old-timey advertisements that I could then pop up if I just didn't have an image because I could not afford logistically to spend like three hours looking for the perfect image for sad or happy when I had this video due, you know, within 24 hours. And of course you have like those unique placards for the Game Over Thinker, Hard Truth and Big Words. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I eventually amassed, none of those were like planned out to become placards. Running gags. Like from the beginning. You know, those were, they showed up uh, in one episode, and then I was like, you know, I've still got that, I might as well use that, and then it became a thing to use. Though, listening to it, it says, this sounds really basic. But as it went on, it says, like, yeah, okay, this one I do actually need to pay attention and parse. So I guess you could say, like, the complexity. It got more complex yeah. as you as the episodes went on. Well, a lot of the early Game Over Thinker stuff, you know, when it wasn't being topical, were things that had been swimming around in my head with no place to land for a long time. So by the time they got there, you know, some of them were really basic. Some of them were, you know... If I had, like, hosted my own video game show in, in the mid-80s would have been a thing that I put up or, or put together. And then as it went on, it became more, okay, I want to talk about topical stuff. I want to talk about relevant things. I'm actually playing new recent video games again, so I want to get into those, which required a, a different skill set and a different approach. And since we are a criticism curatorial site... You do occasionally do, like, video game criticism in these shows, but they're mostly culture commentating. Yeah. But you do have, like, the occasional episode. The one that sticks out in my mind is when you try to explain Bayonetta's character design. Yeah. Care to comment on, like, that position that you put yourself in? Or how you position yourself? Well, well, the main reason that I don't generally do video game criticism in and of itself is that when would I have the time? For the past six, seven years, I've been doing two weekly video shows, one about movie reviews, which requires me to go to screenings and watch the new movies and write scripts for them, and another one that was about coming up with something new to say about, you know, the ephemera of popular culture, and that had to be done twice a week, which ate up a lot of time. So my time to play video games is a couple of hours, once or twice a week, maybe. So the idea that I can sit down and play a 30-, 40-hour game and develop a working review or overview of it, and then talk about that while the game is still immediately relevant, it's just not logistically conceivable. So it often became more about, okay, if I'm going to talk about new recent games, it's going to be about character design. It's going to be about aesthetic. It's going to be about something stupid the developer said. It's going to be about the legacy of a character or you know, in many cases, complaining about bad games, rather than sitting down and really digging in and reviewing, like, a full game, which I would really love to try my hand at. I just don't have the time. All right, this is going to be a little more ephemeral right. sort of things, but when it comes to, like, the skits and ongoing story arcs you did, because of what you said earlier with, like, your positioning and coming back into gaming, how many of, like, the other characters that you ended up portraying be, like, I guess, reflections of yourself. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of them are, to, to one extent or another. I, I think you can't help that when you're playing them. The character thing came up largely because around the time that I was, you know, looking to, okay, I want to take this show to the next level, what was really popping 
was, and, and I, I want to be clear here, I'm not like a, a follower of what of trends or what's going on. Like, I, I never looked at the show and said, this has to be whatever's popular at the time. What would typically happen was I would see something and say, oh, hey, that looks awesome. I would love to try something like that. You know, if, if it didn't look awesome to me, I don't care what was popular about it. And when I first did the first show dropping in a character, which was the, the anti-thinker, you know, I conceived that as a joke that I would do for maybe, like, a series of five episodes. And it came about because I was seeing uh, I had become associated professionally and in a, a friendly sense with a lot of people who were doing the, you know, at the time, these were the boom years for Channel Awesome and uh, the, the nostalgic critic adjacent people you know, back when that was a, a collective of a bunch of people all working from the same area. And a lot of, you know, reviewers were trying out the thing where they imagined themselves saying the opposite of what they say. And I kind of thought, you know, hey, that might be funny to do for a couple episodes was, would be to have a bad guy version of me come in and say mean things about games that I like and maybe kind of have a point concealed within them about what's really going on, but mainly have it be said by this clueless asshole. And I thought, anti-thinker, that's just such a funny name. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll put on a backwards ball cap and, you know, originally like a, a douchey looking uh, rugby jersey and uh, a gold chain. And I'll just be one of these assholes. And uh, I'll sit down and talk about how great Call of Duty is and how retro games suck and uh, just do a bunch of things. And it would be fun to put that on and, and, Use use the Saga Sky voice that I just kind of worked on as just a you know just a fun thing to do around friends was to imitate the accent of guys from Saugus, Massachusetts. And I thought, yeah, that'll be funny. So, and at the time, I was hanging out a lot with my brother at his apartment, and he was uh, he was filming a lot of the sitting around talking stuff, and he loves to make you know movie projects as well. And we thought, hey, this will be really fun to do. And I did one of them. And the plan was, I will do one. I will do the the changeover, and then I'll do like three episodes where this guy comes in and acts like an asshole, and then the game over thinker will show up on like the sixth time, and he'll throw like a Mario fireball at him or something. He'll blow him up, and that'll be it. And it'll be done, and it'll be like a fun thing that maybe we revisit every couple of years if the show lasts that long. And I did it, and people hated it. Like it was the 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 first anti thinker episodes the the one where he shows up and then the one where he comes in and talks about how much he he hates like the Legend of Zelda no Mega Man I think was the first one was like the most hated thing that that I'd ever put out like people were furious and it ran the gamut from this is not what I want to see to you changed it now it sucks to Oh my God! You're what really pissed me off was that it started people, you know, started to hit out and saying like, you know, you're just doing what this or that, you know, internet reviewer does, and that guy sucks, and that guy's an asshole, and why would you do that? And I'm thinking, well, not only are they, are they shitting on me, but like a lot of the people that you know had gotten to this kind of material first were like friends of mine, and I have the kind of personality where if you tell me not to do something. And it's kind of in a very, you know, reasoned, rational, hey, maybe you don't want to do that kind of way. I will be considerate of it. I might not listen to you, but I'll be considerate of it. But if you come at me with like a no, fail, failing grade, 
it will, my first instinct is to start doing that and only that until, you know, you wither away in submission. I take criticism very well, I think. I don't take combative, you suck heckling very well at all. Because very often that takes the form of someone who wants to be the show themselves and can't do it, so they have to take a shit on someone else. And I don't play that. So as soon as the anti-thinker got a really bad reaction, this was in like around Christmas time too. If you look in that first video, I think my brother's Christmas tree is up in the background. And, uh, and there's snow on the ground for the outside parts. We sat down and shot the anti-thinker footage over the course of a night so that I could make videos out of it later for future reference. So I already had all of these videos cut and ready, and they were going to come out once a month because that was the schedule that was on at the time when it was being uploaded directly to um, an earlier incarnation of Screw Attack. By the time I was getting through it, I was so combative about people hating the anti-thinker, hating the sketch, hating all of that, that in the back of my head, I was conceiving, you know what I should do? I should have a running narrative outside the show with, you know, me as a character version of myself interacting with all of these other people as though this is like a regular, like, television show that has recognizable shtick. And of course, no, um, I, you know, other people were doing this at the time. Doug Walker was doing this with his movies. Louis Lovog Linkara was doing this running. He, he's probably like the king of this. You know, he went all out and, became, and you know, went from, you know, I'm going to read some comic books to having like this Power Rangers, Star Trek hybrid thing happening on the margins of the reviews, which is just super entertaining. I, I never got to that level. But it kind of got my head. I was like, yeah, I could have other characters, and I could have some ninjas show up, and I could have, like, a sidekick, maybe some puppets, and get, you know, like, a whole big mythology happening. You know, both because suddenly this sounds fun to me, because, you know, if I had a choice of maybe it's just the generation I come from, I'm very used to people talking about video games and pop culture on television doing so in the context of having a put-on personality and characters. And, you know, when I'm, again, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. When I think, here's a show with someone talking about video games, I picture Video Power and Captain N or the Anti-Gravity Room or Nick Arcade, where there's a, a, a jokey, fun component. You know, I sit down thinking of ideally what I would have wanted the, the game overthinker to be, or any show of mine, would have been a hybrid of Siskel and Ebert and Pee-wee's Playhouse. So, uh, Spite, the genesis of creativity. Exactly, yeah. And it was fun, because, and, you know, not even like, um, even the, you know, uh, Craig, who's the, the head of ScrewAttack, who's always been a great mentor and an inspiration, you know, in terms of someone who built an, an empire within this scene out of just fairy dust and hard work, basically had misgivings about the anti-thinker as a character and whether or not to do it up. And, and I did say, no, it, it's going to hang around for a little while, and then there's going to be characters and gags, and uh, and and that's where it's going to go. A lot of feedback happened back and forth between uh, myself, between people who were helping produce the show, uh, other creators. And uh, by the time it came to, it, it ended up setting up that the 50th episode of the show would be the one where the, the overthinker would come back in. It was uh, warmer weather, and, you know, talking to my brother and my friends and 
said, hey guys, you know, we always want to make movie stuff. We've got all these props. We'd had a movie production that we'd tried to put together, an independent film production that had kind of failed. And we'd had one successful one, which was a zombie film, which was a lot of fun. We had another one that's going to be my directorial swing that fell apart. We had all these props and gags and tricks lying around. We had this very nice forest to shoot in. So I figured, well, holy shit, let's do the 50th episode. Let's do a big, crazy fight scene with video game effects and sound effects and references and all of this stuff. And that'll be episode 50, and it'll be a ton of fun. And then, you know, we'll bring it back, and it'll be more episodic. So we did that, and then I came back, and the shows were episodic for a while. I decided, you know, that worked out pretty well. I want to do more of that. So I started to bring in the other character ideas, the ideas of this mythology, none of which was sketched out in any kind of meaningful way. You know, it sort of came together episode to episode. Okay, I'm going to add this piece of stuff. I'm going to add this piece of stuff. We had the talking rabbit literally because I couldn't think of another solution to having this character who was supposed to be like a police commissioner who would get would would call up and send me out to do stuff as a plot device and i thought well you know what fuck it put the rabbit on the desk and i'll do a voiceover and it'll be funny that it's a rabbit and that was just that there was no greater thought to that it was just making trying to make something out of stickers and glue and i always like to end on this question i usually get groans from most of my guests what is your favorite video game of all time super mario brothers 3 I figured. Well, it better be. I did write that book. Thank you, Bob, for coming on and talking with me today. Hey, no problem. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Please, dear God, rate us on iTunes. And if you like this and all the work that we do at Critical Distance, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. Uh, you have one, don't you, Bob? Patreon, yes. My Patreon is moviebob1. Please donate. Please. Keeps me doing stuff. And uh, thank you all for listening, and thank you, Bob, for coming on once again. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. 